Welcome to episode 357 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I've really enjoyed this camping out with you in the Lord's Prayer throughout the summer. I didn't mean for that actually to be a consistent metaphor, but I just realized <laughs> that's when you do your camping, right? Isn't during these glorious summer months, you can set up a fire and be outside and see the stars. And so that's kind of what we've been doing is looking at the stars as each of these petitions, all of these individual words, and then coming together and reflecting on what it means that God has been so good to give us a way to pray, both a general means, but also a really specific process by which we can come before him and pray. And we're drawing somewhat to a close. I think we still got a lot of discussion left, but we're at least drawing close to a close in the final phrase of the Lord's Prayer, or again, the prayer that our Lord gives to his disciples like you and I in instruction on how to pray. So we're coming to this end and it's just ramping up in my view. We, we've got some crescendoing that's going to happen and hopefully we get to see all of that in its gloriousness, or rather you all get to hear all of that in its gloriousness <laughs> as we talk about it on this episode. But you know, there's a lot of glorious things that we do. And one of those things is affirmations and denials. The people love it. We got to give the people what they want. So what are you affirming with on this episode? So the listeners may remember, uh, probably about a year ago, actually, I affirmed a book called Building a Second Brain by Tiago Forte, and in the process embarrassed myself by not realizing that his name is a Filipino name, which is my heritage. But uh, all of that aside, he recently published another book, which is sort of an expanded version of a chapter in that book called The Para Method. So if you read Building a Second Brain, there's a number of like compartmentalized methods that are contained within the building a second brain method. One of them is called code. It has to do with how like you, you capture information and you get you like, you get your notes into your second brain. And then para P A R A is the way that you organize the information once it's in there, but it's, it's bigger than, or broader than I should say, just this like building a second brain methodology, the para method. And this is why he published it as his own book. The para method really is a just an organizational method for digital stuff. So whatever whatever digital stuff you have, whether it's your Google Drive or your calendar or your email inbox, whatever it might be, you can utilize this para method in order to sort of like use all of that digital stuff as a sort of a way to drive productivity rather than just like sort of hanging out. So I won't go through the whole method in detail, but it's you have these four different folders, actually five different folders. One of them doesn't fit into the anal or into the acronym, so I don't know why it's uh, necessarily there. But you have your project folder, your uh, areas of responsibility folder, your re uh, references or resources folder, and then you have your archive folder. And so everything fits into one of these folders. And the sort of closer to the front end of the the acronym you are, the more attention that folder gets. So a project folder would be something that is uh, a distinct 
task or project that has an endpoint and you have a marker to say this is finished. That's like the definition of a project for him. Areas of responsibility would just be like ongoing things that don't have an endpoint like fitness or family, like those kinds of things that you're responsible for, but they don't have like a due di- a due date or a final state. Um, and then references is pretty self-explanatory. And then when you're done with anything in the first three folders and you don't think you're going to need to actively access them anymore, they all go into the archive folder. So the book is good. It's very short. I think I read it in three, two or three days. You could sit down easily and read it in a single sitting. I think total time, time to read, excuse me, was maybe an hour and 15 minutes. So it's not very long, uh, but it's immensely practical. And I can tell you, um, I applied this methodology to my own Google drive and then also to my email address at work. Um, and I could even tell just doing that. It made my whole mindset towards this digital stuff that I have a lot clearer and a lot easier to use. So check it out. Um, I would probably suggest reading, actually reading this before you read building a second brain, if you're going to do it, because this is almost more foundational and he doesn't really get to the para method in building a second brain until like halfway through the book. Um, so you're kind of like building this database without really knowing how to organize it, which was kind of a weird approach. But yeah, it's it's good. It's not super expensive. Um, it's applicable to a lot of different things. You could even, if you wanted to, I don't know how you would do this, but you could do this. You could apply this to like physical notes. Like you could apply this to your physical bookshelf, where if you have like books that you're reading on an ongoing basis that you're responsible for, maybe it's like devotional literature that you read over the course of a year and you just continue to read through it or journals that you're responsible for, something like that. You could have four separate things in your your bookshelf. I guess it'd be three things on your bookshelf. And then a fourth would be like the attic. There you put the books you know you're not going to use anytime soon. You know, the books you're currently reading, actively reading would go on the first shelf. The books that you need to maintain and keep up with. I'm not sure exactly what that would look like, but whatever that might be, those go on the second shelf. And then the books that you know you're going to need to dip into as references would go on the third shelf. So it's a methodology you could really apply to a lot of different, a lot of different areas or different ways. Sounds great. We're, we're all about trying to get that mind focused and clear. That's some first Corinthians 14, 33 action right there. Go yeah. Yeah. What about you? What are you affirming? So we've talked a little bit more recently because you've invoked this habit of taking on some running. And I think we've talked about this before. So I'm just going to double down and say, it's really nice to try to find something that you want to do to get your body moving and to create a goal around that. And if that goal for you is walking or running or a little bit of both, then I'm affirming with just go find some event in your community that would allow you to do that, but gives you a goal like our race. So the 5K, at least in in the United States, is kind of like ubiquitous now. So five kilometers for the the brothers and sisters that – so some of our brothers and sisters are like, yes, give me that that metric. And then the other half are like, I have no idea what you're talking about when you use those terms. So 5K is 3.1 miles. And there's so many just great races supporting so many different things. Of the walk, run, variety, there's no rules with these things. You show up. But if you've never had the opportunity to to attend or to be a part of one – to me, and in my mind, it's really like the last holdout, especially in like Western culture, where you see people coming together and cheering one another on just because running and walking is hard and because 
most people just don't go out and do it. And so then it got me thinking about like this wonderful scope of this experience. There's so many different types of races and there's so many short races. There's one kilometer races, there's five kilometer races. And then you can get into some of like the more wild things where like there's the marathon, which of course is 26.2 miles. And then there's stuff beyond that often called like the ultra marathon that usually are in the 50 or hundred K range. So I just wanted to book in this because whatever your experience is, there's something for you out there. And there is a real joy in testing your body, the body that God has given you in a responsible way, but to have fun and to be connected with others who are undergoing the same type of physical trial, literally that you're doing. So I came across recently what I think as far as I can tell, is the longest ultra marathon. It's called the Sri Chinmoy Marathon. It is 3,100 miles of running slash walking. Now, Tony, if I was going to say to you, 3,100 miles, where might you set this run? If you had to guess like where this thing might take place. Well, where, if, if you hadn't told me what it was called, I might have a different guess, but I'm guessing it's in China. So it's a good guess. That's a very good guess. So it's actually started, it's named after this gentleman who started it. But this race takes place annually. Actually, I think it started in 1997. It takes place every year over a 52-day period with runners traversing just a 0.5488 mile loop in Jamaica, Queens, New York City. So if you're if you're doing the keeping score at home, this means that if you want to finish this 3,100 mile race in 52 days, then you have to average 59.6 miles every day. <laughs> so uh, the last thing I'll say is you might be thinking, who are the insane people and how many people actually do this race? So last year, 2022, it took place from September 5th to October 25th. There were six finishers, which I find remarkable that there were six people that finished and 11 total participants. So just an incredible thing. And I think this just goes to show like God has made us in a fearfully wonderful way. And the fact that this can even be done is incredible, but there's something out there for everybody. And this race at least proves it. So get out there, move your body around. But if you're looking for a little motivation, and even if you think, listen, I'm not a walker, I'm not a runner, you can be. And so I think trying to find somebody to do it with you and say, let's do like this local 5k for that supports our library or something that supports like cancer research. Like I am sure in your community they exist and it's just a fun way to get out, meet like-minded people and really be encouraged in probably a way you've never been encouraged before because uh, just in case nobody knows this running is hard. Do not trust the people who are like running is easy. Yeah. Running is hard. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't know what I was going to deny, but I'm denying that race now because that's insanity. Like <laughs> I could see, not that I would ever, I shouldn't say I couldn't do this, but I'm never going to do this. I, I could see what it would look like to train for and engage in a like one 60 mile run. Like I could, I could comprehend that in terms of like the disruption in your life. Like it'd be a lot of training, but then like it'd be one day and it's over, or maybe you do it over the course of two or three days or whatever, but, and then it's over. But like to spend six, like 60 miles, even at a fast pace, that's like (laughs) six hours, five hours a day or something like that. Crazy. I mean, these people can't be doing like seven minute miles, right? 
No, no. And in fact, the yeah. rules state that it starts each day at 6 a.m. You get until midnight each day. So you could take your time. But the winner last year, and this, of course, is wild. Whenever you're quoting winning times and days, that's a serious event. The winning time was 43 days, 3 hours, 20 minutes, 27 seconds. So the idea, of course, is to get to 3,100 miles. You have that full time frame, but of course, you don't have to take it. The person who won was from Zurich. They were 40 years old. Incredible. Wow. Incredible. So, but the thing is, the whole point of this is like, find the little feat that challenges you. That, and that's the beauty of it. There's so many different, you can do 5Ks, 10Ks, 1Ks, half marathons, full marathons, or any number of ultra events. There's super fun things out there. And this just proves that there is a literally some race for everybody. So I haven't yeah. found one longer than this. But can you imagine for 43 days running something like, so obviously this person averaged higher than 60 miles a day, even if you're just, even if you're running for, you know, 12, 14 hours. So are there rules that you have to run every day or is this like the kind of thing where he probably pushed it hard and then like took a day off and then pushed it hard and took a day? Like that sounds to me like what you would have to do to do it in for like 43 days worth of running in 50, for sure. 50 or like a 60 day period that that's just insanity. I can't even conceptualize that. <laughs> I know it's incredible, right? In some ways it just leads me to praise God for how he's made us. That, so yeah. Somebody could do this. And of course there's training and there's genetics involved. All that's true, but you get the 52 days. You're exactly right. You can use them however you like. That is the duration of the race. You have that time after the 52nd day, everything shuts down. What I think though is, and, and you'll appreciate this as a person who's running, one of the things that I think is particularly challenging about this is that it's not a particularly interesting course. The right. course is just a little over half a mile. Think about how many loops you were doing on this race and how mentally this is a challenge, both like physically and mentally. Yeah. You'd almost, you'd almost have to like strap an iPhone to your face with like a, like an, uh, like a looped Netflix account going on there. Like one eye you're watching TV, the other eye you're trying not to crash. I mean, I suppose they probably have like the whole area blocked off. It's like super like there's not cars you're dodging and stuff like that. That's probably part of why it's so small. But that's some like Forrest Gump level stuff right there. <laughs> it is. Yes, it's around a sports field, a playground and a high school. So you're not even near traffic. But I recall during the pandemic when most of the world was in lockdown for good reason, that there were people that were doing like marathons on their balconies where they would just run back and forth for hours and hours on end. So it's something to be said like for how God has, gorilla. yeah, basically how God has made the human mind and the body to be able to undertake these really dramatic and incredible challenges. But I think again, the lesson here is just a challenge for everybody. And yeah, you know, for me, that's often just getting out and doing the, the 5k, especially when it's hot, but what a joy. If you've never had the experience of being part of a race, and race, I say that like very loosely because I think some people are turned off by that term. It's not like that. This is a way for people to join together of various skill sets, of various paces, of various experience, and basically physical prowess and come together and say, hey, we're going to walk, run this, this whole course. We're going to do it together. And people come out and they cheer on this and you get mutual encouragement. It's an, it's an incredible thing. Your, your day is coming, brother. Yeah. We need to get you into that 5K. Well, and just uh, just for the the dominant demographic in our uh, our podcast here which is people who live in the United States one kilometer if you were thinking of a 1k is is a it's like a 0.6 miles a little bit more than picks 0.6 miles and a 5k is a little bit more than three miles so it's I think sometimes I don't know about you maybe because you're used to doing races and stuff you you've 
and you're just more mathematically inclined than I am, you probably have like a better sense of, of the ratio of a kilometer to a mile. For some reason in my mind, a kilometer is always longer than a mile, which is backwards. So when I first started people talking about running a 5k, I was like, is that like a half marathon? And it's like, it's like three (laughs) miles. So if you are one of those people that wants this, and this is the other thing that I think is really encouraging. Most of the 5Ks, unless they're like really competitive 5Ks, um, but like the the ones that are for charity or the ones that are just sort of fun run style 5Ks, you can register to run or walk. And you could walk a 5K in like an hour if you kept for up, sure. up even at just, a, just a moderate pace. You, that wouldn't even be pushing it that hard. That'd be 20 minutes per mile, um, a little bit more than that. And that's not... That's not a hard pace to keep up. Um, you could literally put on our podcast and by the time, unless it's a really good topic and we go for like an hour and 15 minutes, um, you could literally just listen to the podcast and walk until the podcast done. You probably have completed a 5K. So it's it's a doable goal. I think you're right. I mean, I've, I joined a little running group on um, Strava. I haven't really met up with anybody or talked to anybody yet, but even just watching the running group, people chat with each other in this sort of like digital medium, talking about running and planning runs and stuff. There's something similar that kind of happens in Pokemon Go, which I actually was playing a Pokemon Go event today, where you there you're encouraged to walk. So like you have this sounds so dumb, but like you have to hatch these eggs. And to, to hatch the eggs, you have to walk a certain number of kilometers. It's like there's a two-kilometer egg, five-kilometer egg. So I went out this morning and hatched a bunch of two-kilometer eggs for this event. And that just required me to go out and walk. So it's a it's a good goal. And it's really – it's funny because one of the things I was going to do for my affirmation was walking. So it would have been like the same affirmation. Um, but walking is actually really healthy for you. Just getting out there for and sure. getting moving. It's really, really good for your health to just get your blood moving and get your lungs moving. So if you are one of those people that that feels like I should probably get in better shape, which let's be honest, most of us are, are people that should get in better shape. Um, just getting into a habit of walking a mile every morning, you know, walk, walk 10 minutes out to a point and 10 minutes back, put on a, put on a news podcast or a, a devotional podcast and walk 10 minutes out and 10 minutes back. And you've walked about a mile. It's a really good thing you can do for your health. And it's really good for your like mental well being too. Maybe don't put on a podcast, just walk, just right. be alone with for your sure. thoughts, spend that time praying or meditating on the scripture, put on an audio Bible or something like that grab a friend, walk with a friend. There's all sorts of ways you can redeem that time that might otherwise feel unproductive. And what I found is once you get to a point where you're doing this regularly and you start to feel the health benefits, you recognize that like the walking is productive in and of itself. And actually like, it's funny, I used to not like to walk. And so my wife would always be asking me, do you want to take a walk? Do you want to take a walk? I'm like, I don't really want to do that. My feet hurt. I'm, I'm tired. Now she's like, do you want to take a walk? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. I will always say yes to taking a walk. Um, so yeah, yes. I, I think it's great. I think it's a, it's a good goal. I am hoping to be able to get to a 5k. I've had a little bit of like setback in my running just because the timing of my runs hasn't worked and the weather's been, been junky. So, um, but I'm, I'm getting back onto it. Hopefully I'll go out for a good run tomorrow morning. Yeah. You spurred for me one thing we should probably mention and disclose and that is you mentioned Strava. That's kind of just like an athletic app. It's yeah. for people posting any kind of athletic activity that done weightlifting, rowing, swimming, running, walking, and I want to echo what you said. There is no shame in that walking game. Like yeah. get out there and walk. That is legit exercise. Yeah. If anybody is curious about that, just go out and try it. But come look us up on Strava. Go yeah. 
download the app. If you want a little encouragement, connect with us. You can connect with others and see what they're doing out in the world. It's a super fun way to keep involved. And I will echo what you said. If there is some kind of running slash walking group in your community, definitely join. Like just get involved and try it. And you're going to meet, I, I'm just going to say this. I think you will come across some of the most interesting and encouraging people that you ever have because it's a bunch of people coming together to say, let's do something that's pretty hard. So we want to help each other out. And often there's like you said, probably like meetups. And I know there are in my area and the people are like, almost like super encouraging. Yeah. Um, which is another reason why the church is better than any other group because it's that plus the people yeah. of God, right? Yeah. It's that plus worship. It's that plus like a real fulfillment. It's not just a country club. So those things are great too, but Strava is cool. Come find us, come, come stalk us. So, so the question is, is that your denial? On this episode? No, 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 no. My denial is way worse than all of this. Oh, wow. Okay, here we go. Yeah, I'm denying bees. So um, I don't know if it was like this when you were. So for the the new listener, we, we always run into people who are relatively new to the show and they, they don't understand all the jokes and stuff. Jesse is my brother-in-law, which is where the That's name of correct. the podcast comes from. I actually saw a picture on like Facebook memories the other day. That was like the birth of the podcast at a brewery. But um, Jesse's my brother-in-law. So I'm married to his younger sister and I live in the church that he was raised in, in his childhood home. So you'll sometimes hear me ask him if it was like this when he lived here. That's, that's the background. So I don't know if it was like this when you, li when you lived here, Jesse, but the, there seems to always at least once a season be some sort of bee wasp hornet related event at the parsonage here. So last year I found a big, um, they're called, what are they called? White bald faced wasps. They're like yeah. this, this terrible evil little things They're They, they build these tiny little paper, uh, wasp nests, but these things recognize human faces and hold a grudge. So if they see you messing with your, your, their, um, nests. I think I denied these things last year. Yes. They will not only chase you, but they will chase you and recognize you in a crowd. So you, like you couldn't go hide in a crowd and be like, they're going to sting somebody, but it's probably, not, they will children. find you. Yeah. And they'll, they are mean and they hold a grudge. The ones that I'm seeing this year are not quite as mean, but they're harder to get at. So usually it's pretty straightforward. You just get like one of those big foaming spray things. So on the outside of the building, there are windowsills and it's an old building. And within one of the windowsills, there's like a crack, not into the window, but like into the like siding of the building probably. And I wasn't able to see anywhere else they were coming out, which is good because they don't have an exit besides what I'm going to fill with poisonous foam. But there's, there was like hundreds of bees coming in and out of this windowsill. And I didn't figure it out until I was crawling past it, trying to get up on the deck to like carry down a dead air conditioner. So I got to figure out what to do with these, but like, really, like, can you just leave me alone for one season? Uh, but th there was enough of them that I was like, ah, I'm going to need to like really plan out how to do this. So now I'm going to have to, I'm going to wear long pants. I'm going to like duct tape the duct tape, the legs closed over the boots. And it, there's, I'll have to make like this makeshift beekeeper outfit, but yeah, it's just, it's just annoying. And they're just, I'm not allergic to bees. These are probably just regular, like, yellow jackets. They're not, they're not like killer bees or like right. Japanese murder hornets or anything like that. If they sting me, it's going to hurt, but I'm not going to die. But like, man, just leave us alone for one season. So yeah, that's my denial is bees. It's terrible. I'm not even really afraid of bees, but this has given me the heebie jeebies. 
I, I hear you. What's funny is, once again, without any kind of planning, we're absolutely in sync because my denial is also an insect. Also involves keeping on long pants, long shirts, and maybe no, duct taping your pants. Yeah. What I'll ask you, what is that thing that I'm denying against? I'm assuming it's ticks. You got it. So it's not only ticks, but like just tick-borne illnesses. I was just, so this is how you know like things are bad when you read something. I was reading Bloomberg Magazine, which of course is principally about like economics and finance. And the cover article is about Lyme disease, which is a tick-borne illness. And they were quoting that now really it is kind of an epidemic, at least in the Western Hemisphere and especially in the United States. And the CDC estimates something like 476,000 people a year in the U.S., are diagnosed with some kind of tick-borne illness. And so I'm kind of just saying this to everybody because we're contractually obligated as a top 50 healthcare podcast oh, yeah. to say, you just need to take ticks seriously, loved ones. Be careful if you're in wooded areas where you know ticks like to hang out. They reproduce at rapid rates. Tick-borne yeah. illness is a legit thing. Sometimes it is easily cured, like in quotation marks, by like some kind of short duration treatment. Oftentimes it is not. It's yeah. just ugly. So check yourself before you wreck yourself out there. If you're in a place where you know ticks to be, check your pets, check yourself, check your loved ones in a non-weird way, and just make sure that you're being vigilant about the ticks because they want to get on you. And if they bite you and they have some kind of bacteria, you're probably going to experience some kind of physical duress. It's yeah. no good. So it's, it's just no good. And I can't believe how ubiquitous it's coming. So I just appreciate that people are calling out and saying like, Hey, just be careful out there. So whether it's bees or ticks, watch yourself. The fall is a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. Lyme disease is no joke. And especially in New England, it, it would be unusual for someone not to know someone who has had Lyme disease. That's how common it is. Um, I mean, I've heard of like four-year-old kids getting it. It's a really terrible disease. And Lyme disease isn't even necessarily the worst of the tick-borne diseases. That's true. Um, there's some scary ones. There's one that makes you allergic to red meat, which is just bizarre. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. It, it's it's a crazy thing. So just as a top 50 healthcare podcast, I think we got to be in the top 10 by now. We should just start saying I hope 10. so. As a top 10 healthcare podcast, um, yet another inside joke that you're going to have to go back to the, the deep back catalog for that one. Um, easiest way to deal with ticks is to simply take a good shower when you come inside check yourself while you're in the shower and use as hot of water as possible. So the one thing that is super common about ticks is they don't deal with hot. They don't deal with heat very well. Right. So take, take a war, a really hot shower, double check in all of the folds and cracks and crevices and the awkward places. If you've got a spouse, this is part of what their <laughs> job can be is to check all of the <laughs> private bits and make sure there's nothing clinging on there that shouldn't be. And uh, throw your clothes in the dryer on hot for about about a minute and a half. And if they're there, they'll die. Um, yeah, it's there. That's no joke. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah, it's for sure. Listen, again, the whole earth groans. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and sometimes so do we because the earth is groaning. So, yeah, I love this. We were certainly unified all around here and definitely on our denial of certain types of insects. So I'm with you. I did recently, I went to take out our recycling. I opened the recycling bin. It was a communal recycling bin and there was a, a hornet's nest being built. It was early in the morning. And because you know, most of my neighbors are of the elderly variety, 
I felt in that moment a deep sense of conviction that I was the one to battle them at that moment. And I was like, here we go. So it's just me. Like, I wish somebody was watching me from afar because it's, it's me like taking, I had like a, some cardboard. So it's like me taking swipes at something invisible from the inside, then jumping back and being like, no, no. And then coming back in and trying to swipe them down. So I'm totally with you in what it takes to battle sometimes the creation. You got to take that dominion. It's true. Got to take that dominion. Well, I'm going to be taking dominion over these, uh, these, I think they're yellow jackets, <laughs> which on the hierarchy of, uh, stinging bee like insects that, uh, that will try to sting you. Yellow jackets are not all that aggressive. So I think I'll be okay. But yeah, you just go like out in the morning when they're all still sleeping. But yeah, I took care of that bald face hornet jacket or wasp, uh, nest last year and i was i had like two layers of clothes on i had i had jeans duct taped to my leg sweatpants over those duct taped to my uh, ankles lace up boots that that was all tucked in like a hooded sweatshirt and i was wearing like a ski mask uh it was and it was like 95 degrees and i literally it was up on the deck so i i think i was probably in more danger from falling down the stairs but i sprayed them and then I ran away. I just ran away like a little like a little girl and ran away. Uh but they all died and and that was me taking dominion over the creation. Yeah, that was that was right on. Fortunately our demographic is is not mostly composed of little girls who might have been offended. That's so true. I don't know. I feel like little girls would run away from wasps too. <laughs> little girls don't run away from everything, but they would run away from wasps. So yeah, it's, it's probably too. Well, think, speaking of things that are the exact opposite, that don't sting, that are welcoming, that bring <laughs> us into the fold as opposed to pushing us out. Let's talk about the Lord's prayer. And again, as has been our tradition throughout the summer, it's of course appropriate to hear these words from our Lord that are instruction to his disciples and us as well. So I'm going to read again from Matthew chapter six. And beginning in verse 9, this is Jesus speaking to us. He says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we're finding ourselves, we've, we've just had this lovely conversation of breaking down all these petitions and we're coming to the end, which most would consider this idea of this doxology, speaking of God's power and his glory and his kingdom persisting forever. And then stamping that as it were with this like very hearty amen that says, let it be so. So before we talk, let me just address the elephant or the gorilla that's in the room, certainly somebody's going to be thinking of this. It's helpful for us to mention this. So I read from Matthew chapter six. You're going to find this prayer in several other places in the gospels. The doxology is, the words I just read at the end there, is included in the King James Version, but it's not in a lot of the more recent translations. So you're not going to find it in the ESV, the Christian Standard Version, or the NIV. And there is good reason why you don't see it in Matthew six in most English versions. The oldest and most important biblical manuscripts, which date to like the fourth century, they don't have that these words, that sentence at the end there. It doesn't even appear in the Latin Vulgate. And many would say, and this is true, I think, the church fathers like Tertullian, Cyprian, Origen, even Augustine, they don't show like familiarity with that ending. But on the other hand, 
You have like the Greek father, Chrysostom. He comments on it in his sermon on the Lord's Prayer. The doxology is found in many ancient Greek manuscripts in Syriac, Coptic, and the Latin translation. So kind of in summary, like on balance, the doxology is clearly ancient, but the best and the oldest manuscripts don't have it. Now, of course, like there's nothing in that doxology that isn't present in other parts of the Lord's Prayer. It's not just like a recapitulation, not just summary. There is something that happens there. So in that traditional ending, we're not adding any ideas that are not already present in the Lord's Prayer. The second petition mentions the kingdom. The third petition implicitly calls on God's power to incline our wills to his. And that first petition asks that God's name would be set apart and glorified in all the earth. So this is like a really amazing concluding acclamation. It's consistent, and we're asking for God to make himself present in the prayer that we've just prayed. So I say that just by means of setting the table. If you're the kind of person that sees it in brackets in your translation, it's like, uh, am I supposed to say this or not? Like some people do, some people don't. I don't have any particular issue with bringing this in in full measure in your prayer life. And I think rather than getting too distracted with that, I just want to mention that up front. Do you have like any other commentary on that? Yeah, you know, I think this is a really interesting um, academic conversation to have about how do we determine when we have um, contested or questionable uh, passages in Scripture, which there aren't a lot that are of any significant size. Most of the time when there's a disputed or a questionable um, part of Scripture, we're talking about a word here or maybe a, a phrase here. In this case, this is on the longer side in most instances. You know, we do have some very long parts like the um, the long ending of Mark, which is several verses long. At the end of the day, we have to trust the Holy Spirit to have, right have transmitted the scripture through the ages. And I, I want to read um, one of the... the um, commentary sets that I go to or commentary series that I go to that is generally reliable, um, not always, but generally reliable is the pillar New Testament commentary series. And I just want to read here what it says here. So this, this passage, this portion is called the, the doxology. It says here, quote, in the form in which the prayer is commonly used, it concludes with the doxology. So what he's saying there is that when we pray this out loud, when when we, you know, when we do this on the Lord's Day or when we do this along with the Lord's Supper, we t- tend to pray the version of the Lord's Prayer that includes this doxology. It says, concludes with the doxology, quoting again, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is lacking in the oldest manuscript in Luke as in Matthew, though it has considerable early attestation. But it may be argued that it is uh, it is unlikely that a first century Jewish prayer should conclude without a doxology and that as absence in many manuscripts may be because it was simply assumed while in others, it was explicitly included on the whole. It seems probable that it was a liturgical edition made in the early life of the church, but we should not regard this as certain. The case for the doxology is stronger than many students assume. So right. I guess where I want to land on this is you're going to encounter people particularly online, you're going to encounter people um, who will make this not only a hill to die on, but a hill that is absolutely certain in that if you don't, you know, if you don't think that this is in the Bible, or if you don't think that this is not in the Bible, then then somehow you're not only wrong, but you're stupid and probably evil. Like that, I've seen conversations that go the direction. And to 
I don't know, make matters worse or to intensify things, the inclusion of this petition in our confessional tradition and our confessional standards sometimes introduces a question mark, right? How can you subscribe to the Westminster standards, which include the larger catechism, when this is considered to be part of the Bible? Because the this was understood as part of the scriptural testimony when the divines wrote the confession, right? This was just... Right. This was part of the text that they had in front of them. How do you subscribe to that confession? I don't I don't want to get into all of the details. There are some people who will act as though you are absolutely, utterly unconfessional if you think that this is not part of the Bible, because Westminster, larger or shorter catechism, 109 is, is a reflection on this. People will make that same argument with the, the Johannin comma, which is the, that passage in First John that seems to be a real clear proof text of the Trinity. They'll make the same argument in regard to the Belgic Confession, which seems to have the understanding that Paul was the author of Hebrews. Um, ironically, people will try to make that argument from the Westminster, but the Westminster seems to explicitly not think of Paul as the author of Hebrews. I don't want to get into all the details of how and why that's not the case, but there are certain elements of the confessions that it's not that they're unimportant, but we have to recognize that they were they were drafted within a historical framework. And we also have to recognize that there are some portions of the Bible, this being one of them, where it's it's uncertain and so we have to be cautious, but that caution goes on both sides of the debate. We should be cautious not to think of this as not absolutely not the scripture. We should also be cautious to think of this as absolutely the scripture. Um, there's good arguments on both sides. I actually tend to, to fall on the side of this being original to the text um, and that we just don't have we don't have those early manuscripts. Um, the Didache is one of the earliest uh, one of the earliest Christian documents and seems to include this. Right. Chrysostom is one you mentioned. There's a number of early witnesses to this who include this. Now, the, the counter argument is that the Didache was such a popular liturgical manual that people got used to using this prayer. And then when they saw a manuscript of Matthew that didn't have it, they're like, oh, well, this must this must be a mistake. We'll just put this back in there because we know that it belongs there. The real answer is we don't we don't know for sure. And different methodologies for determining this will yield different answers. But at the end of the day, we probably shouldn't get bogged down in this because what the, similar to what we talked about last week, whether it's the evil or the evil one, at the end of the day, both of the, the theology that underlies both of those statements is true in the Bible. It's just a matter right. of whether it's true in this particular passage. So I, I think we don't want to get too bogged down on it as I spend 15 minutes talking about it, but we don't want to get too bogged down on it, but it's worth reflecting on. And this is why this is clearly biblical teaching, whether it's present in this, uh, in this passage or not. And since it's clearly biblical teaching and it's part of the historical tradition of the church, all of our theology grew up, whether you're a pro, whether you're a reformed Lutheran, a Baptist and Anabaptist, wh whatever tradition you find yourself to be part of all of our theology, unless you're like a dispensationalist that popped up in the last hundred years, all of our theology sprang forward in a context where this was considered to be the scripture. So we can't just ignore it. We can't just chop it out of our Bibles and just, just pretend like it doesn't exist. And theologically, we have to reflect that. There's a lot in this, in this that we're going to talk about. There's a lot here about the nature of God 
that we have to understand and we have to grapple with. And because this prayer is so central to the life of the church and so central to the piety and the theological reflection of the church, this phrase is important to the history of our, our shared traditions. And I'm going to make the argument that this phrase at the end, of course, this doxology, this expression of praise, which flows out of everything that has preceded it, is, I think, that in some ways, like the highest order of this prayer. It's like ramping up. It's increasing. It's not, again, just kind of slowing down. And we get these like three direct objects, the kingdom, the power, the glory, and all those things forever. And then we are attesting to those things by saying, amen, in which we all agree that those things are present. I think actually this being present there is a strong argument for how we understand all of Jesus' ministry and why it should be included. And that's that all things are for the glory of God, which I understand is like Reformed Theology 101. So you're probably like, let's move on from that point. But what I'm driving at here is there is a lovely bookend in the Lord's Prayer. There is a God-centeredness, which pushes against sometimes the modern conscription of prayer. So, so much today, prayer is like devolved into like a self-centered pursuit that is fueled by just fulfilling one's indulgences. And that's like outside of like where the, the extreme examples like the prosperity gospel, where prayer is just denigrated, nothing more than like name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, like some kind of shopping excursion. And there is a lot of abuse of prayer. So this idea that we're saying, when you come to the end, we're focusing on these three direct objects, which very clearly are meant to emphasize God's ascribed glory that he is the one that is to receive all praise, is the objects of our affection. And then we're intensifying the language around that. We've already said, would you give us the daily bread because you're a provider? Would you deliver us because you are the one that saves us? Would you come and spare us from temptation because you are the one that controls all things with great supremacy and a superintending will? And then we like slap this almost like exclamation point. Like to me, when I pray this, I get ramped up at the end as yeah. opposed to coming down. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think this is one of those like uh, Kool-Aid man run through the walls kind of passages in scripture. For real. And the reason that this is part of the reason why I think that it's, this was alluded to in the passage I read from the pillar to, um, commentary. The reason I think that this is part of the scripture is because it's, it flows so naturally and it fits right. in with the understanding of how prayer functions. Um, one of the things that we want to do, and we're, we're either going to do this next week or in the coming weeks, we want to go through a couple biblical prayers and just talk through how they sort of fit this same pattern. And one of the things that you see, especially in Paul, is he, he has these biblical prayers and it's like by the time he's done, he's so energized, he just bursts into these refrains yes. of praise and doxology. And the Lord's Prayer is one of those things where once you start to, you ask God for all these things, and it, it linguistically and from a text, like a, a almost like a form criticism perspective, linguistically, the conclusion of the prayer ending in this sort of doxological prayer matches up very nice with the beginning of the prayer, starting out with petitioning God to make his name holy and acknowledging that he's our father who's in heaven. And so you, you start the prayer by acknowledging who God is, by recognizing that he's not only our father, but he's our father in heaven and all the stuff that comes along with that. You petition him for him to make his name great. And then at the end, you're again acknowledging that he is the Lord and the sovereign and that it's his kingdom and his glory and his power that, that is answering the prayer. 
It's almost like a statement at the end of the prayer that, Lord, here's who you are. Here's what I need. And here's the, here's the evidence and the proof that you not only are able, but you're willing and you're happy to answer the prayers of your people insofar as they're prayed agreeable to your will. Like all of that is baked into this phrase here. Yeah. It's, you know, it really strikes me because doxology, we probably haven't defined it yet. Right. Have we said what it is? So like, I don't think so yet. Yeah. In Greek, this compound word doxa glory logos speaking. So, or a speaking. So we're getting the sense that like at, there is a shuttle, a shuttle, not <laughs> like a shuttle that would take you a subtle shift in that we go from petition to speaking the promise. And that promise is that reflection of who God is. It's a vibrant declaration at this point. I would say, I would wager to say that what we've seen so far isn't exactly a vibrant declaration. It is relying on the promises of God and asking that he would come and fulfill those promises. But we move in such a direction from like, you know, in the psalmist way, like why is my soul downcast to like rejoice in your redeemer. And when we get to this end part, it's like you said, it's almost click dragging and dropping the answer of the prayer into the present by making these statements. And I love that they're all definite articles because, and yeah. for me, the one that stands out, I don't know how you feel. They're all great. But is this idea that we should declare the power belongs to God? I love this, the power. So that definite article bringing like the infinite scope of his sovereignty. He doesn't possess just like a portion of the power, like a little power, some power, most of the power, but like all the power, all the things, hashtag the power. So that is to say like he has all power in heaven and earth, all that God's supreme will chooses to do. He has the omnipotence to execute fully and unequivocally. So nothing can hinder that free exercise of his sovereign pleasure. And so we come forward with all of these petitions where we're saying, God, would you do these things? I think sometimes in our culture, when we pray these things, evangelically in like the kind of milquetoast sense, we're like praying with fingers crossed, like, God, would you please show up? Would you please come? Would you, I desperately need you. When you get to this end of this prayer, there's no ambiguity about the fact that the one who has the power is the one you just spoke to and he will bring it to pass. So to me, there's just like climax on climax, but I'm really drawn to this language of the power that God is coming with the full scope of his being, his presence, his influence, and it's unencumbered. Nobody can thwart the outstretched arm of the Lord. So like you get like in this, these two words, like all of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament in the death, resurrection of Christ, all of the Holy Spirit being present in his people to affect God's will and to turn their wills and their hearts to back towards the Father and a glorification of the Son. And it only happens because he's got like all the power. Isn't there like an 80s song? I don't know. With like the, something with the power? Like a worship song? No, no. <laughs> Oh, there's probably a worship song that's like about the power. Yeah. I mean, well, there, there are, but I think like, would you say, I, I, as I was thinking about this for this week and reading through the Lord's prayer again, I just thought this is a place that I feel like in my own life is like, I underemphasize like the power of God and we know it's present. We know it's a reality, but to what extent? And of course we're praying here. We're also acknowledging that this power, the power that everything belongs to God always is working for our good, a la Romans 8.28, but may not be working toward our expectation. But it doesn't mean that there's any less power. 
and the fact that we can rely on God to bend everything. This is like, we just keep coming back to like the confessions. This is like, everything is subservient to our salvation, isn't it? Like this is a recapitulation of that idea or rather the, the confessions are a recapitulation of this idea that the power belongs to God. And we pray that back to him, but we pray it as a statement as like, again, a declaration, not as like a, Hey, if you have the power, it would be great if you exercise that right now, but you do and you will, and you have, and this is what you do for your people. Yeah. And in, in a certain sense, like, um, you know, the word amen, even just by itself sort of actually includes all of these concepts. Yeah, for sure. When we say amen, we're agreeing with it. You know, it's, um, the word amen basically means like truly it's like a statement of agreement. But when we say amen and we pray to God, we say amen, we're basically asserting that God is who he is and he has the ability to answer our prayers. We're kind of saying like, may it be so that's baked into this. And I, I agree with you. Like, I think sometimes um, I was talking with a a friend of mine who works at the hospital who um, who's also studying biblical theology and Greek, and we're having a conversation of how sometimes people make these really strained arguments based on like the definite article in Greek or like a particular clause or a particular case. I don't actually think that's the case here, though. I think this is a really really solid argument. We're not just petitioning God because He is one power among any among many right and this is this is obviously anthropomorphic power god is not separate from his power and that's that's why i said earlier like this is baked into the theology proper of the reformed churches that god's god's power is the power all power in the universe is derived from and granted by god so you know you can go to places like romans 6 um, that all authorities are ordained by God. And, and when Jesus is in front of Pilate and he says, don't you know that I have the power to uh, either to release you or contemn you or to put you to death? And he said, you would have no power if it wasn't granted from you from above, right? So there's this theology that underlies who God is and how earthly reflections of who God is, they all are just reflections of who God is, right? When we look at a sunset, we think, man, that's glorious. Or, or we're kind of using that synonymous with like beautiful. It brings us to our knees, either metaphorically or sometimes I think physically. Sometimes you see something or you experience something. That's why they say like you get weak in the knees when you see something really, really beautiful or you're experiencing something like that. That is a reflection of who God is. And, and all of those, this is going to sound like super weird and platonic, and I'm not trying it to trying to make it that way, but all of those things that are in some sense a power or a glory or a kingdom, if we want to think about those things, all of those only are pale reflections of and only exist because God has imbued the creation with some of his glory, with some of a reflection of his glory. Right. That's what we're saying in this prayer. That's what we're acknowledging in just these three little clauses, right? These three little, they're not three words in Greek. They're like three and a half, four words in Greek. If you think of like definiticals as like part of a word, but like there is that element that it's not just that God has a kingdom and a power and a glory. God has the kingdom. There's no kingdom apart from God's kingdom. All of these other kingdoms, uh, you know, I was listening to um, a 10 minute Bible hour with Matt Whitman, which it just sub affirmation, I guess, like just, he's going through Esther. It's really, really good. If you're not listening to it, you should check it out. Um, 
part of the things that he goes through, and it's it's a major theme in, in Esther and a major theme in sort of his lead up to Esther, is that like all of these earthly kings that we read about and hear about and in, you know, in Esther and Xerxes and in other parts of the Bible, he talked about Herod when he was going through Matthew and Pilate and all these other rulers and how they're basically just like chumps and jokers, right? Nebuchadnezzar is just a chump and a joker compared to God. It's just these little reflections of God in that they are powerful. Like Xerxes had the power of life and death over those who were in his domain. He literally could just put people to death if he desired to. That is something we have to grapple with. And that I think this is where humility comes in. We exert our own sorts of power and our own sorts of kingdom in our own lives, right? As a husband and a father, I have authority uh, in a different sense, but I have an authority in my household that is ordained and given to me by God. And I can either exercise that well or I can exercise that poorly. But where it starts to really go sideways is when I start to think or act as though that is an autonomous authority that is not subsumed under God's authority and constrained by God's word and, and constrained by God's will and his law. All of that theology is part of what we are affirming when we pray and when we when we conclude right. the Lord's prayer with this doxology. We're, we're limiting ourselves, we're humbling ourselves by magnifying the Lord. Right. I love what you said there, this idea that we see predominantly displayed in Esther is something like all kingdoms are sub-kingdoms, they're all contingent, they all rely on God. And you see that amazing irony, like it's almost laughable in Esther because yeah. there's Xerxes who's like, listen, let's feast for like six months straight up. It's going to be <laughs> opulent. You get to drink whatever you want. Here's a dude that can do whatever he wants, except get his wife to do what he would like her to do. So like even something there where it might seem like the simplest way of preserving relationship and having influence, he can't exert the thing that he wants. Yeah. I like what you said. I think it's, it's helpful to kind of land on this idea of glory. Like God's glory in the Bible is spoken of often in at least two ways. We have this intrinsic glory. It's the revelation of all that God is. It's the sum total of his divine perfections and his holy attributes. And where I think we can sometimes get confused is there's nothing that man can do to add to that intrinsic glory of God. It just is, whether we acknowledge it or not, doesn't distract from it at all. He is who he is. In addition to that, we're often at the same time speaking, getting confused by this ascribed glory, which is the glory that is given to God. This is the praise and the honor that's due his name. Such glory is to be ascribed to him alone. That's better than like just credited to, of course, or acknowledged. It's this idea that we have a debt of honor and obligation to make sure that the intrinsic glory of God is recognized in the way that we act as we ascribe it to him because he's owed it. So even like our ascription to God's glory, if we fail to do that, doesn't mean he's less glorious. So sometimes we get in this place where we're thinking about the Lord's day or service of worship. And we're saying, God, we just want to come and praise you. We want to make sure that you're given. He doesn't need us for any of that stuff. We don't add anything to it. So if we were all just annihilated, as it were, it would make God less glorious. So here it's in some ways, like you're saying, a prayer to remind us that we ought to ascribe God the glory, which is due his name already. He's already established it. This is a bit like saying you owe it to him and you ought to make sure that that is the way in which you live. So there's Christ is referencing, I think, that ascribed glory here. It's a direct response to his vast sovereignty, this unlimited power, 
all the glory must be rendered to him. And in essence, such a high theology produces then this amazing praise, this doxa, this spoken praise, uh, an out loud praise, as it were, which again, we did. Didn't we do like a whole episode on challenging the idea of like always preach the gospel? Yeah. And if necessary, use words. Yeah. Yeah. So this is like in that same vein saying, no, you use the words. That's what doxology is. Like God has called you to speak. And in speaking, and even there, I might make the argument that I would say, and I don't want to push this too far, that it's often, what we have here in the model of this prayer is that it's often and perhaps always in some ways appropriate to speak it out loud, to do it together. Of course, there's inclusive language, there's the inclusive pronoun, but beyond that, that the idea of doxology by its own nature is somewhat incomplete if it is not being broadcast. That's what doxology is. Yeah. So here we have an, a lovely example. Yes, pray in your private prayer closet, but also come together and say together in unified voice, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever. And then amen, to your point, is the communal agreement said out loud in your own voice, in the voice of your neighbors saying, let it be so. Yeah. And let it be so standing with me. Yeah, I think the other thing, just to touch on before we start to wind down here, this clause doesn't exist independent of the rest of verse 13, right? So I've commented a couple times through this series that because of the way we sort of like break this up into first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth petitions, because the way our Bible sets these off in verses, this is actually one of the main objections I have to like the one verse per line style Bibles because it it sort of like chunks off individual clauses and separates them from other clauses. Right. The way that this reads in Greek, the, um, the doxology of the prayer either is in reference to the immediately preceding um, words, or I think less likely, but possible the entire prayer. This is the grounding of the whole prayer, Right. So, so literally in the Greek, it's, you know, but deliver us from evil or, uh, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Right. So this clause, this doxology, this acknowledgement that God not only has, he possesses, which means theologically, we understand that he is. We might translate kingdom as dominion in order to to better make it into right. an attribute, right? God is dominion. God is authority. God is glory. He is power. And because he is those three things, or I should say he is he is those three things, he's, he's one thing that has those three things, things as facets of it, right? Because that is his nature, because of who God is, all of what we just prayed for, we can pray because God is, because the kingdom is his, because the power is his, because the glory is his. And that's one of, again, that's one of the main reasons that I include this when I think about what the scripture is, right? You can, you can, we can, on another episode, maybe somewhere down in the future, when we run out of other topics to talk about, we can get into all of the text critical stuff. I have almost no interest in text criticism. I really appreciate the people who do it. It's an important science and art. I get all that. I'm not I'm not poo-pooing on that. I my favorite Greek professor in college is one of the one of the foremost 
text critics in the world, Michael Holmes, right? He's, he literally published the SBL Greek New Testament. So I'm not poo-pooing the art of text criticism or the science or practice of text criticism. I just don't really have an interest in it. Theologically, this doxology fits perfectly. And it serves as, just as that introduction, as I said earlier, just as the the sort of uh, initial doxology, if you want to call it that, the prologue, I think is what our confessional statements call it. The prologue establishes the grounding of the prayer. This explicitly establishes the grounding of the prayer, like grammatically and linguistically and logically, the fact that God's, it, the kingdom is God's, the glory is God's, and the power is God's. That is what grounds not only this prayer and as, as the model prayer, what this teaches us. I haven't even looked at the confessional statement. I would assume it probably says something similar. How dare you? This grounds all of our prayers and yeah. our, our entire ability to pray and to trust God that he not only can, but will answer our prayers, that he wants to answer the prayers of the people. All of the grounding for that is for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. There will never be a time. And it's not even forever and ever, right? It's the way that the Greek is phrased. It's, it's literally like into the eternity, yeah. into the eternity. So it's, it's because God always has been in eternity past. He contemporarily is, and he always will be. Because God exists in the eternal, in, in like the actual eternally contemporary moment. Because that's true, we can pray. We can come before Him he, to go back to Esther. Because Xerxes had the total authority to do what he needed to do. When Esther went in to petition him, she had the ability to be confident that if he granted her petition, he had the ability to make it come to be. He wasn't. Xerxes is portrayed as sort of an idiot in the book of Esther. He's portrayed as kind of an easily manipulatable oaf. Like, to be honest, he's just not a super admirable character. He's not, he's actually not portrayed as the worst person possible person in Esther, but he's portrayed as kind of this manipulate manipulatable person. But what he's not portrayed as is an impotent person. He definitely right. can accomplish the things that he sets out to accomplish and this this phrase in the Lord's Prayer, and I would argue this phrase in the, the scripture of Matthew, it sets out our God as the most not impotent person. Not only is he not impotent, he's omnipotent, right? He's the opposite of impotent of he's the opposite of impotent. And that's that's what grounds our entire Christian theology of prayer. So yes. This text is questionable. There's good arguments on both sides, but the theology of who God is that's presented here in the text is absolutely vital to our, our religion, to our faith, to our understanding who God is. So I, I, I love that this is in our confessional documents because it forces us to reflect on it. Um, we can't easily dismiss this text because our forebears developed their theology with this text in mind. Um, this is a proof text for a lot of different things in the scripture, just like the Johannine comma is a proof text for various parts of the scripture. We have to wrestle with it. And I think this is just, it's just good Christian theology. Like it's, it's one of those like comfortable doctrines. Like we've talked about doctrines that are uncomfortable doctrines. This is one of those like comfortable mac and cheese, comfort food kind of doctrines. Like you go back to this and again and again, like we serve a God 
who has the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Like, let it be like, praise Amen. be to God. Like it's a doxology. I'm, I'm going to run through a wall just now. You got to stop me. Or I'm going to just like take off. Yeah, I know. Which is why I started by saying this is the opposite of yellow jackets and hornets. It really is. That's true. And even after 357 episodes, if you've made it this far, congratulations, you made it through 357. We're always trying to break records. I think you just broke the record for the most uses of the word impotence in a single <laughs> podcast. But your point is great. And by the way, speaking of the podcast and your ability to hear it and to have it delivered to you in a convenient way and for it to sound hopefully relatively decent in your ears, uh, that's not because it is technically free. The podcast got bills, y'all. It's true. And so we are so thankful for all of the brothers and sisters that hang out and do that in the Telegram chat, t.me backslash reform brotherhood. And also those who, after appropriately satisfying their obligation to give generously to the Lord's work in their own communities, in their own churches, have said, you know what? I'd like to give just a little bit to the podcast so to make sure it's always free for everybody. There's no paywalls. There's no passwords. There's no passcodes. There's no social security numbers. You don't have to grant anything to get access. We're so thankful for those who give. If you are the kind of person that's saying, listen, you know what? I would like to give a little bit. And a little bit goes a long way for us. You can do that by going to patreon.com backslash reform brotherhood. And I just want to welcome somebody else who's made that commitment and for whom we are very grateful. And that's Brother Ben. Brother Ben, thanks for joining us and making sure that for you and everybody else who's listening, the podcast remains totally free. There are no paywalls. You're just knocking those down. Thank you for blowing the trumpet and walking around the wall. I am very grateful. It's a lot of, a lot of metaphors there. You like that, right? I, I'm so excited. I'm going to go out and run a Sri Chinmoy self-transcendence 3,100 mile race. I'm going to run through the wall and kill all those wasps. I'm just going to knock them right out of the wall as I run through it. No, I, I really am excited. Like we joke around about that. And, and, Part of what is exciting for me about doing this podcast is not just, I mean, I, I, I have thoughts. I like to share my thoughts. Like people don't make podcasts if they don't, if they're not interested in, in talking about things they're interested in, have other people hear it. But that's not what excites me about this podcast. What excites me about this podcast is that I hear on a regular basis. I, I heard from probably three or four different people this week, actually. This was an abnormal week. There was a lot more people reaching out to me this week than average, but it's not uncommon for me in the course of a week or a month to hear from two or three people who they, and this, the story they tell me is almost the same every time they were just getting into reformed theology and they found our podcast and it cemented for them the importance of confessions, or they were in a, they were in a sort of squishy evangelical church and they were doubting their faith and they, they found the podcast, which pointed them to a more robust expression of Christian faith with a solid biblical under underpinning, right? That is what those who contribute to the Patreon um, or in other ways, that is what that money goes to. And so you're right. The podcast is, what is it that Scott Clark, our Reginald Clark always says that bandwidth isn't free, right? It's cheap, but isn't free or whatever he says. That's true. That's true. Like there are costs that are associated with doing a podcast that it's not like, you know, we're not, we're not raking in the dough. We're not getting rich off this. Uh, and, and it's not as though the podcast is costing millions of dollars every month, but there are costs. And it's nice to know that there are people who are partnering with us to help us offset those costs because they believe in what's going on. They, they trust 
that God is using the podcast to bring people into a more fully orbed confessional understanding of the scriptures. Josh, this is the last thing I'll say. Josh Summers over on the um, Baptist broadcast just did a an episode that should be hitting the uh, Society of Reform podcast or feed soon on like why it is that Baptist churches are dying, right? So he's, he's speaking as a Baptist and he intentionally does not address other traditions, but he points out that historically there's this movement away from confessionalism. He calls the opposite of confessionalism provisionism or uh, provisionalism. I'm not sure exactly where he gets that term, but his, his argument is that a lot of churches are not grounded in the historic, robust confessional Christianity that is not only beneficial, but necessary for the preservation of the faith, right? Paul commands us to, to pass on the patterns of sound words, to protect and to guard and to right. utilize those patterns of sound words. He's not talking about the scriptures. He's talking about the confessional statements that the faithful church has derived from the scriptures, the faithful summaries and articulations of biblical teaching that the church has formulated. Well, when we don't do that, that's where the Baptist churches in his argument, that's where the Baptist churches start to die, right? And you can see it all over the place. So we're just this tiny rinky dink little podcast. Like we're, 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 we're doing 357 episodes by God's will. We'll do 357 more episodes. We're not, we're not, we don't think we're Martin Luther. We're not John Calvin. Like we don't have delusions of grandeur, but in our little corner of the internet, we're trying to produce content that is edifying to the saints that supports the work of the local church. And that is something we can all grow from and be edified for. So we, we definitely appreciate any sort of contribution that people make financially. We appreciate when we hear from people that they're praying for us or that they share the podcast with other people. Um, we especially appreciate when people get involved in the telegram chat because it helps to build for this sure. excitement and this community around what we're doing here. So there, those are just a number of different ways that you can get involved. And we're thankful for anyone who jumps on board with any of those kinds of things. You know, they always say to podcasters, you need to give like a call to action at the end. That's like the great secret. If you're, listening to a podcast and you hear somebody at the very end say something, you should do this or recommend this or rate this. Here's all I'm going to say, because we have to give a call to action. Take dominion. And while you're doing that, pray the Lord's prayer, but Lord willing, you'll see us at 358. But until you do, I'm just going to say this, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>